Welcome to The Workplace, the podcast where we try to make the places we work, places we love to work. I'm Andrew Scarcella. Every episode, we'll be talking with a different expert about what makes great workplace cultures tick. A Navy fighter pilot, an HR analyst, a fashion icon, who knows? Will they have all the answers? Nope. But with each one, we'll get a little closer to figuring out what we can do to build workplace cultures where people are happy, healthy, and inspired to do the best work of their lives. This episode, we'll be talking with Daniel Coyle about how the most effective organizations in the world create a sense of belonging. Daniel Coyle is an award-winning New York Times bestselling author of several books on leadership and performance, including The Talent Code and The Little Book of Talent. His latest is The Culture Code, The Secrets of Highly Successful Groups. His study of teams at the top of their game, from Google to the Navy SEALs, reveals a treasure trove of commonalities that drive team cohesion at the very highest levels. Dan was interviewed by Cassie Whale, a writer and journalist who's just back from London. What's new from the Queen Motherland, Cassie? Ah, Brexit, am I right? Tea and crumpets. So, what made you want to interview Dan Coyle for The Workplace? It was so much fun to talk with Dan because he's not afraid to address hot-button issues like vulnerability in the workplace. He's such a charismatic, outgoing individual that it was an absolute pleasure to pick his brain about his own philosophies on what creates a strong workplace culture. Any chance some of that charisma rubbed off on you? Not a chance. Still awkward as ever on the mic. I don't hear it. I'm excited to hear what you two talked about it. Let's get to it. Well, I mean, just to get started, let's just get to know you a little bit. Tell yeah. me about your background and how you came into the space. I, I grew up in Alaska, and my dad w- was there. In Alaska, you either leave after five minutes or you stay for 50 years, and we were in the second group. Grew up with a couple brothers that were right right next to each other, like we were about nine months apart, each of us, amazingly. And so kind of grew up uh, on a track to be a doctor all the way, was going to be a doctor for sure, and then at some point just sort of made a turn, was not, uh, you know, we were still really interested in science, but not wanting to work in a hospital and and got into journalism. And so that's kind of been between competing with my brothers and being really interested in science, it landed me in the spot where I basically have a job, my job as it has evolved, is to go find people who are really, 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 really good at stuff, whether that's sports or art or music or math or great groups, and see what makes them tick. So it's kind of been a combination of this, you know, sort of performance and science. And that's that's where I've landed. Why culture? What what kind of just clicked within you to, to get yeah. so passionate about that? I'm always looking for mysteries. You know, that's essentially what drives me and what drives good books, I think. Big, fat, rich mysteries. And for me, I had written a book about individual talent called, called The Talent Code, and it's all about how individuals get good at stuff. But as I reported that, I kept ending up in these really interesting groups. And I remember there was a time I was in Russia at a, at a tennis club called Spartak, and um, this, this club has produced more women champions in the entire United States in this tiny club. There was a hotbed of tennis talent. And I was there at the moment a new player came on. She's about nine years old, and she showed up for the first time. She had her tennis racket in a little plastic grocery bag. And the coach, who's this legendary coach named Larissa, spotted her at the, uh, walking into the, into the corner of this, this, you know, this, this tennis court and went over to her right away. And she had a tennis ball in her hand, the coach did. And she leaned down and looked at the, at the little newcomer and said, I want you to do something for me. I want you to catch this ball. And so she tossed her the ball and the little girl caught it. And then the, the coach said, I'm glad you're here. And that was it. The whole interaction took like 
10 seconds. But something happened in that interaction. Like that girl went from being a total outsider to being connected and feeling safe and connected to this place. And that tennis ball, that, that moment like fascinated me. Like what happened there? What's that made of? Like we all know that culture is the most powerful force when it comes to human behavior. We've all been part of groups that are amazing where you walk in the room and it feels different. That could be a school, that could be a family, that could be a business, that could be a sports team. Like that feeling of cooperation and cohesion. And when you're around it, it feels like magic, but it's not magic. Like it's a set of interactions like that tennis ball being thrown. And so that ball kind of propelled me on this journey, you know, to look at, I, I looked at the world's best groups. I, I looked at groups that are in the top 1% of their domain, um, in terms of performance that had done it sustainably. And I ended up looking at Pixar and Navy SEAL Team 6 and the San Antonio Spurs and Zappos and IDEO and other companies that have amazing cultures and spending, I spent, I'm spending like five years visiting these places and kind of embedding myself there and seeing how they did it. And, you know, it, 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 it isn't magic. You know, it's a set of interactions that they're really good at and that are learnable. So that's, that's kind of how, you know, that was the big fat mystery that, that sort of sent me on that, on that trip. And it was, uh, and it was the kind of book that was hard to finish because it was really interesting and fun. And it kind of impacted, you know, like how I interacted with my kids and how I interacted, you know, in other areas of your life. Because when you learn this stuff, it kind of changes the way you see things. Was there a common thread between all of them or did they each have their own unique, distinctive culture? Or, or what was it about these places? Why these certain places? And what did you discover when you were in there? What I discovered is, is a really simple but powerful kind of deep, behavioral grammar. It's like a language, but it's with, not with words. It's with behavior. And it comes down to connecting, creating safety, sharing information, being vulnerable together, and having direction. And each of these things I go on at length in the book, I sort of look at them as the book has three big chunks. Each one on each is how do you, how do you create that connection? How do you sort of be vulnerable together where you can actually, that's what makes groups great is, is when they tell each other the truth, right? Um, when they share their weaknesses with each other. And then how do you get purpose and direction? Of those, the one that really stood out to me was the vulnerability piece because I didn't expect that. I sort of expected, hey, I'm going to walk into the Navy SEALs and they're going to be really confident. And they're going to like know what's right and they'll have, they will not express weakness or doubt because they're navy seals i mean come on right um same with you know pixar they'll know what the deal is and when i got there actually i met a guy named dave cooper who is a commander actually trained the troops that got bin laden in our first uh, meal together he says you know the four most important words a leader can say are i screwed that up which kind of blew me away like if, are you really, you know, I kind of question really, he's like, yes. And then he went on to explain how, when you send that signal as a leader, you make it safe for people to tell the truth. You know, you make it, you, 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 you get rid of that power dynamic and people can speak up and you need to keep sending that signal. You need to keep creating what scientists would call a vulnerability loop where two people, two people are being weak together and admitting what's really going on and sharing their weaknesses. And that's how they operate on the SEALs. And that's how Pixar operates too. They have a similar meeting called a brain trust where it's like, you know what? This is kind of painful. We're going to really have to tell each other the truth about what's going on. And it is this, it's really, it never gets non-awkward. Like it's always hard. It's, it's the root word of vulnerability is the Latin word vuln, which means wound. To be vulnerable, you have to be like willing to be wounded. And so these people are willing to sort of put themselves in that space where they're like, you know what? I'm not really good at that. I don't, real, I, I don't think that went well. And they do it in kind of a, 
it's almost like they're an athlete. They do it in a, in a habitual way where they experience that pain that leads to gain. In the SEALs, they call it an after-action review. After they have a mission, they circle up and they talk about what went wrong and what went right and what they'll do differently next time. And they're, they're hard meetings to have. They're awkward, but they're the most important meetings. So that role of like vulnerability was, was surprising to me. And it, and it kind of changed the way when you start putting on, when you look at the world through that lens, you start to notice it places. You start to see it. In, in skilled leaders and communicators when they're like, hey, you know, when, when a leader uh, at a meeting reaches out to the least powerful person there and says, what do you think? Like, that's an incredible moment. Or when a leader says, hey, when you're done with that, will you teach me how to do that? Is an incredible moment. It's a real basic human grammar of like, okay, they're behaving vulnerably and that, that enables other people to behave the same way, which means that you know, groups that hide their weaknesses are weak and groups that share their weaknesses are strong. Do you think that goes against our natural human instinct? Because aren't humans quite, we want to protect ourselves and we don't want to be vulnerable and we want to know everything. So exactly. how, do, how do you break down those barriers? Especially at work. In most workplaces, people have a secret second job of maintaining their status. Like it, it takes a lot of energy and time. It's like a job, right? Where am I? Where do I rank on that? Is that good for me? Is that bad for me? How can I manage this? And... The way that groups overcome that, it, it, we have to read the whole book to really get it, of course. Um, but since we don't have time to do that today, the, um, they do that through signals of safety. They establish intense and sustaining messages of care, of seeing the whole person, of share, uh, the sense that we have a shared future. They're continually radiating the environment with those signals. And there was a, there's a story I tell in the book about um, Greg Popovich, who happens to coach the San Antonio Spurs. Um, he's, he's sort of, you know, from afar, looks like a real cranky guy. But when you spend time with that team, he's constantly like arranging dinners for guys and ordering wines for people. And I was there during a, a practice and there was a guy who had missed a big shot the night before. He goes right over to that guy and starts talking to him about the dinner that he had arranged for that player. And then they go to watch game film and they had lost the night before. So I thought they were going to watch, you know, he's going to yell at them during the game film. He ended up showing a CNN documentary about the history of the Civil Rights Act and started asking them like, what would you have done? If you were around there, what did your parents do? Like, so really interested, you know? And, and those are messages of, there's a called belonging cues. I mean, there's a word for that. It's, when you're around it, it feels like magic, but it's not magic. It's, it's he floods his own with belonging cues like smart cultures do that allow people to be vulnerable. So it is almost like this spiral of belonging. If you, if you strengthen safety, right, you can be more vulnerable, which makes you feel safer which lets you be more vulnerable, which is why when it breaks down, it can break down completely. Like when you look at what happened at Uber or look at the Trump White House on any given day, like there's no healthy spiral of like, we're safe, we're connected, therefore we can tell each other the truth. So um, good cultures, that spiral's always moving. They're, they're flooding the zone with signals of safety and behaviors of vulnerability. And in bad cultures, they're doing the opposite. But I wanna go back to when you first, at the very beginning, when you went into these cultures, you had this preconceived notion, which I think we all did. Like you said, the Navy SEALs, oh, they're gonna be tough. Oh, yep. the football team's gonna be this yeah. way. We all know how football coaches are. What was the most interesting part to you in that, in your own kind of evolution of, oh, wait a minute, like these Navy SEALs aren't who I think they are. Right. Like they have this completely different culture that right. that isn't their stereotype and we don't see it from the outside. Those like most fascinating moments when your own preconceived notions broke down. Yeah, I guess the big preconceived notion I had was that I would get to these places and everything would be smooth, like Pixar. Like it's, I expected great cultures to operate on a transcendently 
good level. Like no one ever has a bad idea at Pixar, right? It's Pixar. They're, every every movie's great. And I didn't expect there to be conflict or tension. Like in a great culture, they've transcended all that, right? Like it's better. Wrong. Totally wrong. There's actually more conflict in great cultures. There's more. There's more hard conversations. There's more realness. There's more struggle. The difference is that there's tensions in every culture. There has to be. You're doing really hard stuff. O.C. Tanner's doing really hard stuff. Um, to collaborate with a group of, of human beings to do something's hard. And there's always going to be tensions. But what I saw in good cultures that surprised me was that they turned toward those tensions. They're always looking for ways to have that hard conversation. Sheryl Sandberg says, she asks people, have you had a difficult conversation today? Hell of a question. Pretty cool, actually. So in good cultures, they're they're, they're, they deal with the same tensions that we all do. They actually deal with them more because they're, they're, they're circled up around them, navigating them together actively, not ignoring them. And, and I think that, that kind of blew my mind. Like, no, no, no. The more you talk about your problems, the better you can be. That, that is so fascinating because, again, that goes against human nature. What problems? We don't, we don't have any we have problems. We are smooth here. No, it's actually the opposite. There's something I started to think of as the smoothness disease, which is a sign of a bad culture when every idea is good. And every day, how was today? It was great. How was, how was that conversation? It was great. It went smoothly. Everybody's on the same page. If everyone's on the same page all the time, are you really learning? Are you really getting better? Are you really confronting the hard things that you have to do together? So that idea that tension and friction, you know, now too much is bad, right? And, and there's, there's just sort of a sweet spot. And they are constantly like overthinking each other and, and being very healthy about that tension. But it is, it is there. How does a new company establish a healthy culture from the beginning? Do you, do you have any advice onto that? Or even a 90 or 100-year-old company, but they're starting over and they're, they're transitioning from maybe an older model to new technology, but they're going through these cultural shifts and these cultural transformations. Yeah. What advice would you give them? How do they enter that healthy stage of conflict? You know, it's funny because I have this conversation a lot. I get, you know, people will call, you know, big companies or small companies will call and say, what do you think? What do you think? And so what ends up happening is, you know, sometimes I'll have a conversation with them. And when it goes really well is when I ask a few questions, this conversation begins, and I quietly leave the room and no one notices that I leave. I think the, the first key thing I would say is try to surface the core tensions that you guys are facing. What are the core tensions? Like, are you trying to balance tradition and innovation? Do you need to balance learning and performance? Like, we need to keep learning, but we also need to perform, right? Like, try to be, try to get those on the table. All good cultures have got kind of a set of very simple directives that function almost like algorithms. Like, when you hang around the Navy SEALs, what you hear them say over and over again is, we're the quiet professionals. What do we do? We shoot, move, and communicate. That's a pretty interesting thing to say. We shoot, move, and communicate. All good cultures have that same sort of thing. They're like these mantras that they live by and that guide behavior, especially when there are problems. And I would challenge the group to start generating what those are for you. Try to think about that. So sort of service the tensions, you know, create the priorities, try to build out some mantras. You know, a group that does this really well is IDEO. Before every project, they have a pre-flight, mid-flight, and post-flight meeting. Kind of interesting. And the subject of that meeting is always the team's interaction. Why were we excited about this in the first place? What's the hardest part of doing this together? Like they have a facilitator come in and kind of walk through these questions almost like they are on a, on a plane. Like, okay, we're the flight crew. Um, we need to interact. We need to make sure we're going to the right destination, that our landing gear is down, that our, our plane is functioning, that the engine's humming, that we have fuel. Let's check in with each other. So that often gets overlooked, like actually being explicit about addressing the interrelationships of the people in that room. 
And another tool that I've seen people use is they'll sort of write users' manuals for themselves. Like, okay, we just started working together. Here's what you need to know about me. Uh, here's a user's manual for working with me. So there's all kinds of tools, and I try to give a lot of them in the book, but there's all kinds of tools, but they all come down to that kind of primal act of, okay, we need to circle up and figure out who we are, where we're headed, and how we're going to interact. But how do you take that in your personal life? How do you create a good culture with your spouse or with your friends? Or can you take these same, can you take these same principles and put them in every aspect of your life? I think you can. Like, it's been kind of funny, actually. One of the things that, um, you know, that moment, you know, when you sit down with your kids at dinner and you ask them the question that every parent asks, which is, how was your day? Right? How was your day? That question has never in the history of humanity ever led to a good conversation. Not one time. Like, how was your day? Your kids look at you like, it's fine. fine. Right. Yeah. Boom. That's it. End of conversation. Um, based on this research and watching these and watch people like Dave Cooper, the other approach that I've started to use is you don't ask that question. Instead, you share something that you screwed up at that day. You share a funny story about some goofy thing. You mispronounced somebody's someone important's name. You forgot where you were going. You tripped on the side. Whatever silly thing it might be, share it and then just see what happens. Right, you're, you're you're trying to do is create a vulnerability loop and and show your fallibility and allow pe other people to share theirs and it's it's very basic but it's very powerful. So, yeah, you do and you end up paying attention to um, you know facial expression more. Actually, you know that ends up you end up seeing the same face in a lot of these leaders. The way that they use eye contact, the way they use their their expression of their eyes is is unique. It's very open. It's called open face. Like they have a very open face. And when you're around it, you can't help but say like, oh, wait a minute, is my face closed all the time? Am I not like sending this really basic human signal that I want to hear somebody talk? You know, that kind of stuff you end up you know, paying, paying deep attention to. It's definitely changed the way, you know, you interact. And then when you start to see vulnerability as an opportunity for connection as opposed to something to avoid, just, you know, being more open about that can really create a lot of real conversations that otherwise get swept under the rug. If you just had to start a new career and go work for any company out there because they have a great culture and because of their yep. innovation, yep. What, what would you do? Where, where would you go work? Well, it's kind of funny, but I think I sort of did it which sounds kind of cocky, but it's it's like, it sort of happened naturally. I always grew up loving baseball and in, in the, you know, for a big chunk of the year, we live in Cleveland and the Indians read one of my books on developing individual talent over the last five years. I've, I've worked with them. I'm an advisor for the Indians. I go down there one day a week. It's great. And so I love it. And, and they're an incredibly powerful culture. They're a team, they don't have the most money. They don't have the biggest market. They don't have the highest draft choices, but they have the best record in the American League for the last five years because they add up to more than the sum of their parts. Their culture there, I've learned tons by being around them, um, by seeing how they're leaders. And they're not, I don't write about them explicitly because it's kind of like my other life, but watching them and, and learning from them has been really powerful and fun. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for coming out here to speak to all of our attendees but mainly for coming down here and just having this one-on-one -on -one little conversation. That was a blast. I really Thanks, appreciate Cassie. It. Yeah, it's yeah. totally fun. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you. You bet. Now it's time for Tangible Takeaways, where we break down big ideas into bite-sized pieces you can take with you and implement in your workplace culture. The first is to see vulnerability as an opportunity for connection instead of something to avoid. Being open to sharing hard truths and uncomfortable feelings can lead to conversations that might otherwise get swept under the rug. The second is to beware smoothness disease, an insidious infection that eats away at workplace culture. Common symptoms include every idea being great, great, really great, 
and the insistence that things are still going smoothly even when the building is clearly on fire. As Dan says, if everyone's on the same page all the time, are you really learning? Are you really getting better? Are you really confronting the hard things you have to do together? The third is that if vulnerability really is as important as Dan says it is, I think I've been shirking my duties. Let's try and create one of his vulnerability loops right now. I'll share a moment of fallibility, and you share one of yours, okay? Okay? Okay. Okay. This is frightening. Hosting a podcast is scary. Do you know how many times it took to get this to sound natural? (laughs) Don't even get me started on what my voice sounds like recorded. What am I even doing here? (laughs) Am I having a panic attack? No. No, I'm just being vulnerable. Which is scary in its own way, isn't it? Okay, your turn. Send your own moment of fallibility to andrew at theworkplace.com, and I'll read the best ones on a future episode. That's it for this episode of The Workplace. If you liked it, or even if you didn't, please rate, review, and subscribe to The Workplace on Stitcher. It really helps us grow and better understand our listeners. The Workplace is sponsored by O.C. Tanner, the global leader in employee recognition. O.C. Tanner helps thousands of top companies create engaging cultures where people can accomplish and appreciate great work. 25 of the Fortune 100 best companies to work for use an O.C. Tanner recognition solution. Learn how to influence greatness in your organization at octanner.com.